Hello and welcome to Settling the Score, the podcast where we discuss the great film scores. I'm John. And I'm Andy. We've put together a list of hundreds of film scores that are considered worth talking about, and with the help of our listeners, we've been assigning them to ourselves by random drawing. And this time, the luck of the draw handed us Rafe Vaughn Williams' score to the 1948 British historical adventure film of doomed exploration, Scott of the Antarctic. Scott of the Antarctic was written by Walter Mead and Ivor Montague, based on the real journals of Captain Scott and accounts of his expedition. It was produced by Michael Balkin for Ealing Studios, and it was directed by Charles Friend. John, tell us a little bit about Scott of the Antarctic. Scott of the Antarctic tells the more or less real-life story of Captain Robert Falcon Scott, who in 1910 through 1912 led an expedition of discovery to reach the South Pole in Antarctica. Scott and his party succeeded in reaching the pole, but a month too late to be the first ones there, and then tragically died on their way back from the pole to their base camp, thus becoming something of mythic, tragic figures in the British consciousness. In the film version, Scott is played by John Mills. His companions at the pole are played by Harold Warrender, Derek Bond, Reginald Beckwith, James Robertson Justice, and other people are in the movie. Christopher Lee is in the movie for like a second. I saw his name in the credits. I couldn't pick him out. He's one of the guys when there's a lot of guys sitting around. Well, he disappeared into the role. Kenneth Moore is a name. He's in the movie briefly at the beginning. The movie begins in London as Scott is trying to gather both the funds and the crew for his mission. And it follows their journey over a couple of years to establishing camp, trekking across the treacherous Antarctic landscapes, and that are ultimately unsuccessful attempts to return. There, that's a, it's probably a pretty somber and accurate description of a <laughs> somber and accurate movie, right, Andy? Is that good, uh, good enough? Good enough. Okay. Andy, do you have an opinion about the proper way to credit a composer on screen in the credits for a movie? Hmm. Now my, my mind is racing to try and remember what the credit is in this movie that would make you ask that because it didn't catch my attention. Do I have an opinion? Oh, it really caught my attention. Uh, no, I think music by... Music by is correct. Okay, yeah. Music by name is the definite correct way to do it. And I've had discussions about this with, you know, student directors that I worked with coming up, you know, discussing, well, what's the best way to put them? Because there's a temptation because like other jobs on the film are credited by the name of the job. It says editor blank. There's a temptation that the symmetrical way to credit the composer would be to say composer name. And I don't like that. And I don't like it when there's any deviation from music by, because there's a lot of elements that go into making the music for the film. You know, there's a conductor, there's an arranger, an orchestrator, a copyist, blah, blah, blah. We've talked about on previous episodes, but they're all under the aegis. Oh my God, the buildup, John. Is there a drum roll under this? (laughs) (laughs) Tell people what the credit is. The correct credit is music by. This movie, the credit is the music composed by. Vaughn Williams, omitting his first name, so we don't even have to talk about the fact that it's Rafe and not Ralph, but it says, the music composed by Vaughn Williams. And I just thought that the inclusion of the definite article in the on-screen credit 
uh, signified some kind of a slightly out-of-the-ordinary relationship between the movie and his music. It may. But, John, did you notice that this movie is very, very English? Yeah, I did notice that a lot. I think that might account for the music being composed by Vaughn Williams. I wondered if that was the case. I really did. That just might be the convention for Ealing Studios. I don't even know if it's a convention, but certainly being upright and composed and (laughs) proper is convention. Yes, I think we're both circling around the idea here that the upper lip of this movie, why, (laughs) it's not bending. Yeah, I mean, I wasn't circling around. I just said it. The credits also are gorgeously hand-lettered in a beautiful Roman type. It looks like, you know, class is coming at you out of the Ealing Studios immediately. Well, you mean, you know, in the sense of being classy and distinguished. But I think it also gives a sense that you are attending a class. This movie struck me as very stagey and didactically intended and sort of like a classroom film strip in some ways, don't you think? Well, I think the way the movie plays for us is different than the way it played for its intended audience, which is a long time ago in another country. And it's incumbent upon us to at least try to figure out what it was supposed to be for them. Okay. What do you got? I don't know. It was hard. It was hard for me because... I'm glad to hear that. The myth of Captain Scott, the national icon that he apparently was, this is uh, not something I'm intimately familiar with, nor something that I really have an immediate feeling for. Like, what, what did he represent? It seems like a lot of the meaning bound up in this story comes out of the last few paragraphs he wrote in his journal before dying, mm-hmm. knowing that he was going to die and that this journal would be found... It's essentially a message to the British public. He said that uh, we are weak, writing is difficult, but for my own sake, I do not regret this journey, which has shown that Englishmen can endure hardships, help one another, and meet death with as great a fortitude as ever in the past. Oh, actually, instead of us reading him, here's Sir John Mills performing the role of Captain Scott writing this in his journal. He'll say it to you. For my own sake, I do not regret this journey. We took risks. We knew we took them. Things have come out against us. And therefore, we have no cause for complaint. Had we lived, I should have had a tale to tell of the hardihood, endurance, and courage of my companions, which would have stirred the heart of every Englishman. And this movie was made, it must be said, in the aftermath, of course, of World War II, at which time this spirit of community amongst Englishmen and bracing each other up to overcome together obviously was of utmost importance to the zeitgeist. Right. The strange thing to me as a a foreigner was that this is a story of a failure Mm -hmm. and a death, and it's hard quite to wrap my head around how that came to represent some kind of heroic spirit of the nation. In fact, the expedition they undertook is the subject of lots and lots of serious criticism about being poorly managed and planned and executed and that the risks that they took were stupid and pointless and there was you know, a lot of unnecessary elements to the tragedy. But that's a difficult thing about the movie because it depicts all of these missteps and, you know, sort of the seeds of the tragedy 
it just wasn't clear to me on my first viewing with what tone it was showing me these things. Mm -hmm. Was I supposed to think, you stupid idiots, why are you getting it wrong? Or, oh, you know, they couldn't have known and it's just fate was unfair. I didn't know what spirit I was supposed to bring. And I had to do a lot of reading to sort of understand that at least in 1948 in England, it seems that the public would have had such a sense that Captain Scott was a great tragic hero, you know, instilled in them. They'd be coming to the movie with that and that everything in the movie kind of falls underneath that assumption. I think that's how it was supposed to play or expected to play. I mean, I think that's right. I think the movie kind of depends upon you knowing the names of the people in his party because, you know, the first act of the movie is building a team, right? We've seen other team building movies before, but he goes around and he meets the various people that, you know, we presumably as schoolboys were taught that these were the fateful people in the tent. Do you mean to tell me you've come 6,000 miles to join my expedition? Yes, sir. Ended this morning. Who are you? My name's Oates. I'm with the Inskillings. He meets Oates. He meets Evans. These names of these brave explorers. There are all these scenes are basically go along the lines of, oh, you're that chap who is in the Scott expedition. Well, of course you can come with me on the Scott expedition. You mean you'll take me? Glad to. You're on the strength. I say. Right, or Bowers comes in and he says, I'm sorry, but we just don't have room for anyone else. And, oh dear, I'm sorry. And then, you know what, I'm bringing you anyway. Hooray! Oh, yes, I was just going to kick you out, wasn't I? Yes, sir. Yes. Well, I'll tell you what I'll do. I'll take you. How's that? And why? Well, because of your Bowers of the Scott Expedition, of course. (laughs) Right, because that's Bowers and you know that that's one of the names. Yes. Except I didn't know. No. And I assume you didn't know. So I thought, okay... The first viewing was a little bumpy for me because I kept being uncertain whether I was being told a thing for the first time or reminded of it because I already knew it or given a kind of fun spin on it because I'm already sick of knowing it and it's time to know more about it. I I didn't know in what spirit any of this was being dished up. But having seen the whole thing, I thought, now I'll come back and watch it again and I'll understand the dramaturgy a bit better. And when I went back and watched it a second time, I felt confirmed that no, there actually are bumps in the movie. It wasn't just my limitations as an audience member. It's a movie that has a confusion of different intentions and tones. And one of the biggest points of confusion, I think, is between the movie and its renowned score that we're here to talk about. I'm so glad to hear you say that because, boy, this... uh, I had a tough time with this. I mean, maybe it's okay to admit up front that this whole... Enterprise, this movie and its score kind of bummed me out. I'm sorry to hear that. It didn't bum me out. I think it's a fascinating case. I have stuff I want to talk about, but it's not based on thinking that it's quite successful in a bunch of different dimensions. Is it just the lack of success that bummed you out or did it bum you out on a deeper level? Well, the movie bummed, the story of the movie bummed me out. It is a bummer. Because it's a bummer that these guys do this thing that is so demonstrably pointless (laughs) and throw their lives away. (laughs) in so doing. That really bummed me out. And then, yes, I was bummed out because, you know, upstanding major British uh, classical important composer Ray Fawn Williams (laughs) is clearly capable of writing powerful and affecting music. He was willing to put his skills towards film music. This was not his first score. He was game to be on board a collaborative storytelling process. 
I think it's a bummer that that collaborative storytelling process was not achieved here. That he didn't do things in the right order, with the right direction, and the result of what he did was mangled and distorted in editing in such a way that I, I, I don't even know. I sort of feel like this whole thing is like an incomplete. Like I, I mm-hmm. can't really judge this because it's not all there, really. I think that's right. It's an incomplete, and that's what's fascinating to me. Okay. Because I hope you're in agreement with me that there is something of great value about this film score. Yes. And there is a reason why it's renowned. And so I, I, all my thoughts were about, so what do we have here exactly? Because we have something. Something here is really good. Yeah, there is some a thing to it. And it's not exactly the thing that we've <laughs> sought out and praised in other episodes of this show. In fact, before we get into hashing out the strange problems that there are with this movie and its score, I want you to, uh, this is a classic therapy thing, like say... <laughs> Some nice things about it. Okay. I want you to like- I like this. Name some moments of music that you like, because there are some moments worth liking here. Wonderful. Oh, absolutely there are. And I like the idea of getting this out of the way and playing this stuff so that- Let's hear some good stuff here, because there's great stuff. Okay, yes. I'm glad you asked me to do this exercise. I will be happy to look meaningfully into the score's eyes and tell it that- I think that the first music that you hear, the main title music, which comprises the main theme, I think, of the movie, is so wonderfully evocative, just as music, of the underlying concept of striving. That's the word that you see on the epitaph of the tombstone at the end of the movie, to strive and not to yield. There's such striving in this music. This started, and I had to pause a little way into it because I was so thrilled, I was taken aback by how brilliantly right it was. Mm-hmm. It encapsulates everything that the movie about Scott of the Antarctic should be about intensely and vividly, immediately. It's, it's a remarkable, dramatic presentation. I think it's better than the movie at telling the story of the movie. Yeah. Just the main title. Yeah, I sign off on that. It's achieved pretty simply. It's climbing. There's this sense that the melody is trying to climb up and then it keeps getting pulled back down. There is this like elastic band resistance, this tension that's immediately apparent in the music. Tracks like you're exercising with uh, with those elastic bands that you exercise with, you know. You know, I sat down to watch this movie. I thought, what is the point going to be? Because this guy died. What are we here for? And as soon as the music started, I felt like, oh, I feel it. You've injected the spiritual meaning of that into me. That there's this struggle against something that is overpowering. It's the struggle against something too big to struggle against. 
and that is dramatized here. It's wonderful. I felt it palpably that it was grappling with forces that he was writing into the music. I thought of, I mean, this is sort of too small an idea of a metaphor, but just the physics of it. I thought of, you know, that toy where you work a marble through a maze by tilting the board it's on and by turning the knobs, you know? Yeah. You know, like the marble's rolling towards a hole, it's gonna fall in, oh no, no you don't. And so you tilt the ground out from under, you tilt the board up to arrest its momentum and then it falls back in the other direction. I just felt like all of these turns and changes in the music were an immediate transcription of kinetic energy being transformed into potential energy and back again. This is interesting to me that you resort to these abstracted kind of images when I feel like the image that this directly corresponds to is in the movie, and in fact, the music recurs later in the movie, and one of its best yes. matching up with the images. Absolutely. It's when they're climbing the glacier in Antarctica. And the sense that this is climbing and it's the nature that they are trying to conquer but that is going to conquer them that they are struggling up i think there's no doubt that this is the most effective musical moment in the movie but yes it's exactly right they are struggling upwards and i was reaching for those physics kind of metaphors because what it was injecting into the visual for me was the sense that the ground that they're on is against them, that right. they're taking a step, but then the place that they step to is suddenly higher than it was when they stepped to it. Just because of how uphill a toil, how Sisyphusian, <laughs> which, believe it or not, is a word that I've used on this show in the past. It wasn't a word then either. I think it's Sisyphian, right? Well, that's why. What? All right. <laughs> but that's right there in the music, is that you can't escape how you're going to have to go down even as you're going up. Well, but they never give up. That piece never gives it's up. It's true. It attains a kind of harsh glory at the end, and I felt like, I don't know if I can put into words, but you put into music the spiritual meaning of this story. The music absolutely is glorious at the end of this piece. It really works to get to glory. It's that sense that the Scott Journal, the way that that captured the British imagination about the nobility of struggle, even struggle that is bound to fail. This is a struggle that is bound to fail, and you can hear it failing the whole time in the music, and yet it gets to be glorious at the end. I had the impression that Vaughn Williams's conception of that glory was a little darker tinged than what I gather was the standard British sentimental stoicism of being plucky and having a stiff upper lip and even dying splendidly yeah. and having no complaints, no complaints. <laughs> I think Vaughn Williams has a more frightening vision here about the role of the forces of nature in that story. Mm -hmm. There's a great element of awe in this struggle and in a lot of the music he wrote. And sure. I feel like the artistic vision there really is something to reckon with and take time with. Another thing that's a marvel to me about this piece is that each of these chord changes, it's a series of triads. There's E flat minor and then G major. All right, there's already a cross relation. We're one chord in. Every single bar is a harmonic shock to some degree. These are moves that we've talked about on other shows as tricks you can pull, especially in a movie score, to kind of make a strong effect. 
if you do seven of them in a row, mm-hmm. you're likely to create the effect that nothing has any particular meaning. But Vaughn Williams does not fall into that. He, through, I think, just, you know, artistic skill and power and ability, being one of the great composers, chooses and chooses and chooses in ways that keep being affecting, keep making you go, oh, oh, oh. Like every Mm -hmm. single bar of this piece makes you go, oh. There's a sense of danger. There's a sense of fear through sheer harmony in this. And even the phrase lengths, there are surprises in it. You know, the tune of this piece is da, 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 da. And then are we done? Are we going on? Are we continuing? I don't even know where I am. I'm sort of off center here. It gets in three bars. Okay, now we're starting again after three bars, which doesn't feel quite right. And then it goes four bars. And you have this sense of something sort of telescoping in front of you, the scale of things never being stable. Mm. The wind is blowing directly in the face of the tune. Sometimes it can push for four bars, sometimes it only has two bars. It's fantastic. I think this is an amazing piece. I agree completely. I think hearing you describe it puts me in mind of perhaps another element of the story that he maybe was thinking about, which is the kind of disorienting nausea of hypothermia, like what happens to you when you are dying of cold. (laughs) Yeah, like you were saying, not knowing quite where you are, where you're going, how you got there, what direction is up. Oh yeah, you get lost in this piece. You get lost, and that is something I was reading, like speculating about explaining the behavior leading to the deaths of these explorers as they just trudge off into the snow, into oblivion. You know, it's awful to think about, yet it's terrific in the archaic sense of something terrible. Yeah, you're right. You can hear, these are not people struggling up a cliffside. These are people like in a whiteout. You can hear somehow that that they're in Antarctica. Somehow it matches the subject in ways that Uh, I think speak to Vaughn Williams' greatness, and that's a special thing to find anywhere, especially in a film score. In the main title, I thought, boy, this is remarkable, and of course this is one of the great film scores. And then unfortunately, the pictures start, and uh, (laughs) the demands on the score get more elaborate and specific, and there's problems that come up. Yeah, and I should say about these clips... On this podcast, we're usually pretty strict that we only play the audio of the recording used in the movie because that's the period recording, that's the historically correct recording. It's the one we're talking about. In this case, we're going to make an exception some of the time because so much of the music wasn't heard in the recording and so many of the sounds aren't clear in the recording. And, you know, I think this conversation is going to be about how the composition kind of isn't bound to just that recording. So, yeah, this audio that you're hearing now is from a 2017 recording by Martin Yates conducting the Royal Scottish National Orchestra of the complete score in modern sound. I think they did a great job. Yeah, it's quite beautiful. Yeah, so he achieves this wonderful music effect, I think, with the choice of what notes to write, what chords and moves between chords. I think this is a musical effect that's achieved with the skeleton of what the music is, but he's also capable of creating wonderfully evocative stuff with the timbre and the choices of instrumentation and color. 
mean, I found particularly attractively eerie and harrowing this solo soprano voice singing wordlessly. This appears in the film towards the beginning over some like establishing shots of uh, here is the Antarctic, here are some crazy unearthly landscapes, barren windswept ice flows and things like that, utterly inhospitable. This sort of is what he was envisioning, that there would be some shot of some bitter, unearthly, icy wind, and that this voice would carry its chill, you know, down your spine. He said it represents the terror and fascination of the South Pole. And the idea of melding terror and fascination is through this sound of the siren call that lures men to their deaths. It's exactly right. It gives a dramatic and... Right, because it's both alluring and, you know, spectral. It's like a haunted house ghost noise. It is. The chills it gives you, it's perfect. That whole sequence has all kinds of ideas. I actually, I have a little history with this score. My personal story of this score is that when I was in high school and I had just started getting interested in sort of how orchestral music even works, I got enthusiastic about some CDs I was listening to and I wanted to see orchestral scores and this was at a time when you couldn't just go on the internet and download them. You had to have access to a university library or live in a big city or something and I didn't have either of those things. So I just scrounged whatever I happened to be able to get. And in some shelf at my high school, there were like three random scores. I have no idea how they got there, little pocket scores. And it was like a Mozart serenade or something that yeah, just looked like strings, fine. And maybe Tchaikovsky symphony. Like, all right, that's sort of an orchestra look. And for some reason, Symphonia Antarctica by Rafe von Williams based on the music of Scott of the Antarctic, which seemed unthinkably obscure to me as a thing. But when I flipped it open, I remember seeing this page. With the xylophone going, and the piano going, my eyes lit up like, what is this? All kinds of tricks and, you know, I can't even imagine how this would sound. What are all of these things gonna combine to do? The orchestra, is being used in a strange, weird way here. And I and I remember I played it into my little synthesizer with not very convincing sounds at the time just to hear what it was. And even then I didn't totally understand because it's it needs to be heard to be understood. It's quite a conception. Yeah, very quiet woodwind and brass chords, but then sounds of snow and ice in a xylophone doing these little scales back and forth. Maybe that's the wind, maybe that's the ice crystals hitting your face, and the piano alternating between these chords with this kind of creepy shiver and shimmer. And then, ooh, this broad theme that enters. Texturally, this is so wonderful and rich and your imagination immediately gets lost in it, at least mine does. And I remember what it looked like to me on the page. I thought, that looks like the kind of music that excites me. It looks weird. (laughs) I think that's so great. Okay. But. But, right? There's a but. I think the therapist time is up here, so let's... (laughs) Yeah, well, we did this because 
Why was this on our list? Why do people love it? Because there is great music here. But it's a film score, and there is a lot to talk about. What's strange about it as a film score? Yeah, what's strange about how it came to be a film score? Just to back up for a second about this notable, important composer, Rafe Vaughn Williams. He was born in the late 19th century. By the time this movie was made, after World War II, he was in his 70s, and he had already written six symphonies and a lot of things. And he's not the best-known, like, classical composer out there today, but he is the British one. You know, he is very clutched to the British bosom about the country's artistic output. I mean, I think if you had a list of the top symphonic composers of the 20th century, I think he would be on an international such list. I don't think he's just a regional favorite. I think he is widely considered one of the greats of the 20th century. Okay, I don't think you're wrong. Well, I don't want to have to confess my ignorance too much, but I will say that my knowledge of Vaughn Williams was limited in the way that I think a lot of people's knowledge of Vaughn Williams is limited. Yeah, that's what I was getting at. Two, I know I've heard many times the uh, Fantasia on a Theme by Thomas Tallis. You know that piece? Very beautiful piece. No doubt, but I bet a lot of our listeners don't know that piece. Well, you might have heard this part. big hit, and it's one of the like all-time big classical hits on lists of faves, is uh, The Lark Ascending. Sure. Which is this beautiful pastoral music, and that's, to me, the sound that I associate first and foremost with Vaughn Williams is this kind of broadly emotional pastoral English sound that rich, deep feelings of the, of the land and the countryside and the poetic national tradition. And I knew that he had also written more orchestrally noisy and adventurous music. I'd heard some of his symphonies. I didn't know them too well. But I didn't know too much beyond that. And yeah, exactly. You don't... All I'm saying is that when I Googled, when I was learning about Vaughn Williams, putting this into context in his career, I wandered through the internet, seeing people on every side saying Vaughn Williams was absolutely their favorite composer. The nine symphonies of Vaughn Williams are their favorite body of work. They listen to them over and over. They love them. Ooh, good for them. There's many, many such people. So I I don't want to assume that my particular limited knowledge is the standard limits. I absolutely cop to having limited knowledge. As I said, he had written six symphonies up to this point in his life. A couple of years after this film came out, he set about the task of transforming and adapting the material that he had written for this score into a new symphony, which became his seventh symphony, which is known as Sinfonia Antarctica. And there was a good deal of scholarly hand-wringing and academic ink spilled about whether or not it could properly be called a symphony, whether it belonged in the august halls of symphonic composition because it was derived from an existing work and because it was written programmatically. It was debated whether you could really call it a symphony or whether it needed to be relegated to being merely a symphonic poem or a symphonic suite. All this kind of precious academic writing that I can't stand. Very, very happy to grant that Vaughan Williams' Symphony Number no. 7 is a symphony, and I really enjoyed listening to it. The question that I am more concerned with is... Can you really call this a film score? Yeah. What is a film score? 
Is a film score the music that you hear while you're watching the movie? Or is it a body of music written by a composer for the movie? Or is it a music that you hear while you're listening to a soundtrack of the movie? These might seem like pointless academic hair-splitting questions, but you end up having to think about them when you think about Scott of the Antarctic. Well, because most crucially, the biggest distinction between what Von Williams did here and what I am most comfortable calling a film score is that he did not write it to picture. He wrote almost all of the music, indeed, before the film was even shot. He wrote his music based off of the script. Mm -hmm. And based off of his imagination and feelings about the figure of Scott and the notion of the Antarctic, the imaginary landscape of the Antarctic. Which he became fascinated with. Yeah, he wrote with great enthusiasm and artistic drive about the topic of the film as envisioned in his head. He essentially did a spotting session for himself just by reading the script, deciding, I think there should be music for this description of action that I'm reading. And he mapped out a list of cues that corresponded to those scenes, and then he set about composing them and recording them. Then the editors at Ealing Studios took the music that he produced and edited against the film. But, you know, it, it wasn't written to what they were assembling at the time. So they cut and pasted it, they mixed and matched it, moved it around, stuff got moved to places where he didn't intend it, stuff that he did write for a specific place got heavily, heavily truncated, like that big splashy cue we were just hearing, here's the vestigial piece of it that's actually in the movie. A ship will drop Campbell's party further up the coast on her way back to New Zealand. What news shall we have for her when she returns next summer, I wonder? There is much for us all to do while the daylight lasts. You know, there are stats I've read. He wrote nearly a thousand bars of music for the score, and less than half of them wound up in the finished film. It was all treated in a very Procrustean manner hmm. of stretching it out and, you know, just lopping things off to fit into places where it wasn't designed to fit. And it feels that way. And I think that's a shame. Yeah. So that's the situation here. We should be very clear. This was not his first film score. It's not as though he was naive about how films worked or what should be done. This was, in fact, his seventh film score. The others had been, I wasn't able to find details about how they were composed, but my understanding is that uh, at least many of them were composed more traditionally to fully cut films with detailed specifications of exactly how much music was needed. Yeah. In fact, he wrote about the bracing exercise that he found in writing for film. He said how satisfying it was to have to fulfill very particular demands of timing. It doesn't even seem that in the case of Scott of the Antarctic, he wanted to hold his work apart from the movie. You can read his letters back and forth with Ernest Irving, who was the conductor of the music. The and music director at Ealing Studios. He was the music director at Ealing Studios, and he was clearly the liaison between the production and Von Williams. And in the letters, it's clear that Von Williams is asking 
can you be more specific about what you need? And Irving writes to him, unfortunately, I can't be specific because it hasn't been shot yet. (laughs) But he couldn't stop himself from writing. He just got so excited about it, it seems. I think he also had a notion that this was a proper way to approach film music, that you kind of get a sense of reading this essay he wrote here. He says, there are two ways of viewing film music one in which every action, word, gesture, or incident is punctuated in sound. This requires great skill and orchestral knowledge and a vivid specialized imagination, but often leads to a mere scrappy succession of sounds of no musical value in itself. The other method of writing film music, which personally I favor, partly because I am quite incapable of doing the former, is to ignore the details and to intensify the spirit of the whole situation by a continuous stream of music. And then he goes on to posit that shouldn't the composer be part of the very conception of a film? Shouldn't the composer be part of the pre-production and folded into the whole process so that everything can be, you know, treated sort of as an opera where maybe the music is played for the actors as they're performing and they're rehearsing and then we can work everything out together. He says something about animation, doesn't he? He says something like, why should only Walt Disney get to make movies that are so completely musical? That's right. Yeah, he says, I repeat then, the various elements should work together from the start. I can imagine the author showing a rough draft to the composer. The composer would suggest places where, in his opinion, music was necessary, and the author would, of course, do the same to the composer. The composer could even sketch some of the music, and if it was mutually approved of, the scenes could be timed so as to give the music free play. I mean, it's a beautiful vision. I think he's got a point. Uh, I mean, it's, it's strange that the music is the last thing added to a movie. Well, uh, yeah, in the abstract, in this intellectual sense, perhaps, and what he describes is this, perhaps, fruitful utopian vision he has in mind and he refers to the concept of a Wagnerian you know Gesamtkunstwerk where all of the arts are melded and they're all in the service of the same storyline I mean more power to you the thing is that he didn't do what he said he didn't collaborate with the writers and the producers and the directors ahead of time. As you said, when he tried to do that, they were bemused and baffled and said, yeah, we can't do that yet because we haven't made the movie yet. But I think he just had a principle in his head by which it was a good idea to write it all out ahead of time. Yes. And I think that they encouraged him because they were so thrilled to have him writing for them. Apparently, when he was first told about the project, he said, I don't know if I want to write about Scott of the Antarctic. But then it somehow got into his imagination. And I see it pointed out by many Von Williams scholars that this really accords well with artistic interests he'd had for years. He had written a piece years earlier called Toward the Unknown Region, setting a text about venturing where no footprint had gone before. His first symphony is the sea symphony about the great expanses and the spiritual meaning of the ocean. And he had written a thing called Riders to the Sea, an opera based on the Sing play, which has eerie voices and a kind of a sense of the uncanny nature. All of these long-standing artistic interests of Vaughn Williams were in this subject. It seems like after thinking about it for a little while, he realized, oh, I would really like to write on this topic, but perhaps my impulse is not quite that of writing a film score, so let me make sure this will work. And he wrote a letter to them and said... As regards the Scott film, I think before finally deciding I should like to have a conference with you and the producer or director, whichever it is, I never know which is which, (laughs) and see whether your, his, and my ideas agree as to the sort of music required. I have very definite ideas, 
And if they do not agree with his, it might be rather difficult. And their response to him was, I'm not surprised that you have definite ideas about the music. That is what we expect and welcome from you. So then, having been encouraged, he got to work on his definite ideas. This was in you know, mid-1947. In January 1948, there's a letter here from Ernest Irving saying, Regarding the timings, I'm afraid no amount of bullying on my part will produce measurements of film that has not yet been shot. <laughs> it is quite likely that when the film is cut, you may wish to synchronize some of the happenings a little closer than it is possible to do before shooting. Yeah. But we cannot deal with that for some months. And it is a good thing to get all the music we can into the score. You see, so he is encouraging him to write anyway. <laughs> So, yeah, so now should we cut to uh, John and Andy watching this film for the first time in the year of our Lord 2022 and realizing that this, this doesn't really work? Well, look, you know, I know we're renowned for our unflinching negativity. That's our trademark. But uh, there are those who think that this works well enough because the music is good enough. It has recently been performed live to projection for the first time recently, and the reviews were very glowing and said it had been quite moving, and I thought, I can imagine that in that context with the music yeah. to the fore, leading the film, dominating the film, it might have some power and effect. With the orchestra in front of your eyes so that you see that this is an orchestral endeavor, I think that would absolutely change your impression of it. Not to mention, the recording of the orchestra that is in the 1948 film leaves a lot to be desired. Just the fidelity with which they recorded this. It is so quashed and flattened and mushy. Yes, especially given that some of the great appeals and wonders of this music are in its orchestration and yes. timbres and subtle harmonic effects. You want to be able to hear all of that with clarity. Which you cannot in the film. The film is not in black and white. It's in a kind of washed out looking color. Oh, I will defend old school Technicolor. I think it has a charm <laughs> fine, to it. Fine, fine. I don't want the position of attacking it. It's it's fine. But I'm just saying that, boy, the recording sounds like it's in black and white. <laughs> like, here's where they're setting out to come back from the pole. And they put up a sail on one of the sledges that they're hauling. Mm -hmm. They've already dispatched with the dog, so they're man-hauling, which they talk about a lot. Yeah, this is the movie with the word man-hauling in it, by far the most of any movie I've ever seen. <laughs> but they're hoping to capture the wind to ease the burden of their man-hauling, and they put up this sail, and this is how it sounds in the movie. Yeah, okay, well, I, yeah, here there's a little, there's some high flutters around the edges. Okay, I suppose that's because of the wind. Now, like, magically fade from black and white to color as we play the modern recording of the same piece. Oh, listen to that color. Listen to that sensitivity to what it feels like to have icy wind both helping and hindering you on this treacherous voyage. 
It's night and day, or I guess at this point in the year in Antarctica, it's completely day. And look, I don't want to sound over-credulous about, oh, can you believe the recording quality didn't used to be as good? Obviously, we've dealt with old recordings before, we can deal with it, but this really just struck me as an extreme case as I was going back and forth and comparing between the two, where it just struck me as barely sounding like the same piece of music. Well, like I said earlier, the use of the orchestra has so much art in itself that without being able to hear that, I'm sorry to say that the score often felt to me in the original recording like something not particularly remarkable that was calling on sort of standard tropes for depicting cold or, you know, marching or tragic marching or ice, whatever. Being recorded in a way where you couldn't hear all of the fine and careful detailing and being matched to the movie in a way where uh, that sense that the composer wasn't really looking at the images and the production wasn't really listening to the music really diminished the effect and the impression until it sounded like, yeah, in a lot of nature documentaries, you know, the music sounds like, oh, some composer put effort into this to write uh, music to fill the time you know, a visit to the South Pole with the Walt Disney Company. Yeah, exactly. Like I said, a film strip. Like, uh, yeah, it felt flattened and ordinary and stagey. Here is this shot in the middle of the movie there. There's some shots of an aurora in the sky. Mm-hmm. What, what do you call it? Not the aurora borealis, it's the other. The aurora australis. Well, thank you very much. It's really a, like a flickering, you know, matte painting effect, which, you know, all right, fine. I'll... It is a not awe-inspiring drawing of the Aurora. But the music sure wanted to inspire awe about it, and it sounds like this while you're watching the movie. Yeah, when that came up, I thought... Oh, Vaughn Williams, come on. You didn't feel more awe than that? Yeah, exactly. It sounds like a parade. It feels a little pat. It feels like uh, some kind of easy, whooshy tropes that anybody would think to do. Well, if it sounded sort of fanfaric, like, it's amazing, it's amazing, it's amazing. (laughs) And I I wanted to be overawed and frightened and, you know, the alienness of the world and we can't understand it. I thought that's what this movie was going to be about. I'm disappointed in you, Mr. Vaughn Williams. I had the exact same feeling, like, oh, this isn't quite up to the magnitude of the glory I thought we were going to be talking about. Okay, so this is how it sounds if you watch the movie. And now the music, you know, takes its allergy medication. Here's how it really sounds. So he wrote two Aurora pieces, one for earlier in the movie and one for later in the movie, and they switched the order of them. Actually, they didn't even use the first one, which is, I think, the more impressive one and the more beautiful. There's this long, well-paced build-up to it. It earns that peroration of brass and stuff. Having gone through all of these phases of shifting colors and eerie sounds and harmonies that are crawling over the tops of other harmonies, exactly right.
Yes, that sounds like the Aurora. Yeah. Yes, it has everything in it. And apparently, when Ernest Irving or Charles Friend sat down to try to fit some of this Aurora music in, they had this, I think, insensitive approach to what had been handed to them, where they went for what they thought was the part with the most impact. Repeatedly throughout this movie, they leave out the buildup, which, as you heard in that main title... It's all about the kind of turnover. Your stomach has to turn over several times as you earn these hard-earned and never-quite-complete triumphs at the end of the piece. That's the composition, and they jump right to the loudest part. Yeah, they sure do. It demeans the music. And I'm also going to say that I think the orchestral performance is just miles better in the modern one. They're like paying attention to the dynamics. It just really, by comparison, makes the 48 recording sound like they're just sawing away and not really thinking about it. So I guess that's on you, Ernest Irving. Yeah, I think that some things are also just on a temperamental dissonance here between the movie makers and Vaughn Williams. Yeah, you're confronted with that temperamental difference just from watching the movie, but especially so if you then go through and you compare what is in the movie with what isn't in the movie. And uh, I think an Englishman should get there first. So as we said, the film starts with well, Captain Scott saying? in London, My then he goes and he meets another guy who he convinces to come along on the expedition, Bill Wilson. Mm-hmm. The scientist. The scientist guy and who doesn't want to come on the expedition I don't first. believe I want to get somewhere first just for the sake of doing it. But, but then Scott convinces him, no, we're going to do real science by gum. And the idea was to go back and carry on all the jobs we started Bill's on wife is looking at them. It's very clear on her face that she knows that this is a fool's errand and that they're very likely going to die and that she's watching the condemnation to a tragic end of her husband and it feels tragic you can see it in her face and there's no music for this in the movie i couldn't let him go without me could i oriana happens in silence there are some big dramatic pauses these looks play in silence in the movie yeah thank you I'm watching along and going, oh, hey, hey, uh, Mr. Vaughn Williams, what's well, uh, I, uh, what's the problem here? Stuff. Write some music for this. There's got to be some music about the impending tragic doom that she clearly feels here. So then I go and I look at the music that he did write. Sure enough, there is a cue <laughs> whose title is Doom. And then in parentheses, Oriana's first meeting with Scott. Oriana is Wilson's wife. Indeed, he had perceived the very notion that I thought needed to be there. He had the right spotting instinct. We need to put some music about the doom here. And then I listened to it. And I tried playing it against the movie. It's this placid scene. Wilson is sitting in his easy chair, and she's sitting on the arm of it, and Scott is standing in front of them. I wonder if the murder will start. Yes, I wonder. It's a small, ordinary scene, and I can just imagine the editors assembling the footage of this dialogue and then saying, okay, what's the music that we have to put against this? Putting it against it and, you know, throwing their hands back across their forehead and thinking... Uh, what in the world is this? You think what in the world? You don't think that that would have given a chilling, foreboding effect? I think it is the right instinct to try to put a chilling and foreboding effect there. Like I said, I missed it. I wanted it when I was watching it and there was no music. But, boy, this is very, very big. A long time ago now. Look, that's all finished. So it is. 
This is a very big chilling and foreboding effect. This is the whole orchestra pretty loud with orchestral bells, gong, gong, fate is coming for you. It feels operatic. And I can just imagine these poor editors at Ealing Studios thinking, oh, but this is just a small dialogue scene in a cottage. We can't play an opera while this is happening. Well, but I mean, I understand that they had that frame of mind. Yes, but they had that frame of mind. If you read the criticisms of this movie now, what is frequently said is that the first half hour before they get to Antarctica, yes, has dated quite a bit. It's all too gracious and British and jolly good and jolly ho boys. And it doesn't really seem like it's about anything real. I think that what would have made it dramatically compelling would be if it had this powerful and frightening music from the beginning. Andy, I'm saying that I wanted the movie that a score that was really in it here would make. And it wasn't there, but I was trying to put myself in the mindset of editors who would reject this music. All right, so we actually have some, we have words about exactly this problem in the previous wife scene at the beginning. Yeah. I always knew he would go back, and I'm not the least jealous. Scott's wife, unlike Wilson's wife, wants him to go and is supporting him and says, I would think less of you if you didn't go, but think of me as you're making the footsteps across. And there's like three or four bars or something that actually got put in. And it's mixed so quiet when it comes in, you almost think it's source music or something. It's like, what? Are they listening to this? Right, and then it goes away so quickly. Stop a little, Con. Hmm? Sit up. Mm, sorry. She's, uh, she's sculpting a bust of Scott. This is what they do at home. She sculpts her husband. <laughs> so it starts with music that I think he thought of as Kathleen's theme, Mrs. Scott's theme. Vaughn Williams wrote this pretty but subdued kind of tasteful string phrase that was going to be her material. But in the middle of the cue, he wanted to have the siren call of the South Pole. This treacherous specter of the South Pole intrudes on their domestic bliss because of what they're talking about. And the studio said, but we can't, Rafe, we can't do that. (laughs) And he apparently pushed quite hard. He really wanted this because it was part of his vision for what that voice would be. You'd see that it was in the South Pole at the very beginning of the movie that we heard earlier. And then it would eerily float through the windows into through their minds. And you'd hear it from a distance in the first part of the movie. And then you'd hear it again at the moments of their death at the end. He had this scheme in mind. I always knew he would go back. And I'm not the least jealous. As a matter of fact, I don't think I'd love you quite so much if you didn't. Don't move, Con. So I wanted to read some of this letter that Ernest Irving wrote in comic verse to (laughs) Ray Fon Williams about why, but you see, sir, he refers here to number eight, and number eight was the cue in the score that was when Kathleen Scott is sculpting Captain Scott and they're talking about his possible trip to the pole. I very much regret to state your scheme for treating number eight has pulled us up with quite a jerk because we fear it will not work. (laughs) Miss Mabel Ritchie's offstage tune, besides annoying Miss Lejeune, who was apparently the film critic of The Observer, would cover, blur, confuse, and fog our most expensive dialogue. Unfriendly Charles, Charles Friend, the director, will cry, Aroint, VW and his counterpoint. (laughs) The public wish to hear, sobs Cole, why Scott the ass pursued the pole. 
The Miss Ritchie that he refers to is the specific soprano who sang on the recording. Failure they meet and ruin black, who mix two voices on one track. <laughs> Choose then a horn or cello, which have different timbres, weight, and pitch. <laughs> you would not wish with siren tones to deafen fans of Odeons, who, listening to Miss Ritchie's A, would miss what Kathleen has to say. The frequencies her voice employs should be kept free from other noise. Your tune should be of different hue and run below, or soar the blue. Wow. Forgive me, maestro, if I seem to hold the voice in small esteem. Its use, like oboe, trumpet, flute, is when the characters are mute. Wow. He thought he could package this condescending slap on the wrist in cutesy verse and that that wouldn't offend him. But apparently Vaughn Williams was undeterred by this joke letter and continued fighting for it, but he didn't get it. It's not in the movie. Yeah, and boy, this really raises the bar for criticism of stuff I write. I'm going to insist that directors talk to me in Charming Dog Girl from now on. Do you think it would help or do you think it would make you just seethe? <laughs> yeah, I, if it made me seethe, I bet I, I bet I could use that. For, uh, <laughs> for your art. For, for my art. I mean, talk about British politeness. Yes, exactly. Run amok. <laughs> it's like <laughs> these letters are full of wit and, you know, delight. And curly cues. Curly cues. They're having such a delight talking to each other. And I think it's quite sincere. You get the impression <laughs> that Irving thought the world of Von Williams and that Von Williams respected and trusted Irving. He doesn't seem skeptical of these things. And when you read from his article about film music earlier, did you read, I think you didn't, I love this passage where he says that the film composer has to be prepared for all sorts of indignities to be done to his work. Just be okay with it. And I like this image he has. He says, he says, you must not be horrified if you find that a passage which you intended to portray the villain's mad revenge has been used by the musical director to illustrate the cats being driven out of the dairy. <laughs> the truth is that within limits, any music can be made to fit any situation. An ingenious and sympathetic musical director can skillfully maneuver a musical phrase so that it exactly synchronizes with a situation which was never in the composer's mind. He embraces that this might be what happens to his music, and he accepts that Mr. Irving is going to be the one doing it to him. I don't know. I'm a little skeptical of the idea that any music can be made to fit anywhere. He's putting a lot of faith in this ingenious and sympathetic music director, which might not be justified, <laughs> especially for this movie where the editing feels really choppy overall. Just There's not good flow and momentum between the scenes. They do disservice to the music all the time by starting it, as you said, in the middle and fading it out just as quickly. I said that this whole movie feels stagey, and indeed he was writing this music while simply looking at a script, and some of the time, the way the music just suddenly shows up to exclaim something at you, it feels like the script that he was reading, you know, said things like, exunt alarms without, like, uh, here's Scott getting out of a tent. <laughs> Oh, here are some alarms from the, you know, little concert off to the side of the stage to usher him out into the glorious Antarctic wilderness. And because it's not in a context where there's music actually connecting with things and telling stories, it feels like it's coming from the pit. It feels like it's a stagey, external thing. It feels like, oh, here's a piece of the trapping of the stage play that I'm watching. 
which is a shame because like you note, all of these big exclamatory moments in the music are actually prepared much better just in the music themselves. And if you just listen to the whole modern recording of the score through, it feels like a story. It feels like it knows something about when to be loud, but the way the movie deploys it, it feels like this kind of loudness is not particularly welcome. Well, that little figure there on the trumpets, I think that that piece was composed to represent triumph, Scott's triumph to the degree that he has triumph. This is his little fanfare for that he was a great explorer and he did achieve great things and look at all of the strength and heroism just of getting to where he's gotten. That, I think, felt to Vaughn Williams and to the filmmakers like an element of this. They wanted to have him be someone who at some point in the movie stands up and he's Scott of the Antarctic that you're seeing a movie about. Dun, dun, dun. And then the editors went and said, where in the movie is the place where he's most on top of the world and most heroic? I guess it's this moment. Yeah. So let's just slap it there. But you're right, it doesn't, you don't know why you're hearing it. So many times I thought, I didn't know why I was hearing that. And then later I understood that I was hearing it because it was the best place they could find to try to get something to happen. Like you'll hear music that clearly is about snowflakes and such when you're seeing a shot of the horse's hooves. He wrote this blizzard music. If you just listen to the blizzard music on your own, it sounds like a real blizzard, but visually they don't really have that scene in the movie, but they sort of do here, so let's put it here. There's no direct correlation between the imagery about a blizzard and the music about a blizzard. They're just both about a blizzard. Yeah, what did you think of the music that is about penguins while you see penguins? Uh, okay. <laughs> I mean, you know, they jump around, so there's like a cascading series of uh, jumpy swoopies in the music. What do you think of this music? I think that it is splendid musical invention. Yes. That just seems like stock music applied to stock footage. Yeah, this is really one of the elements that make it feel like a classroom film strip because, uh, you know, there are also penguins in the Antarctic. Let's look at the penguins together. And it made me think a bit about what that effect of stock music is. It's an effect you get when you sense that the composer wasn't looking at the image. Yeah, that it's, you know, mixed and matched, cut and pasted, which gives an overall sense of a lack of intentionality. Yeah, it gives the impression that the production doesn't think very highly of the images. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. It doesn't think that what you're seeing matters very much because it just applies something roughly correlated with it rather than something that looked at it and was excited by it and cared about it. When you imagine something, you romanticize it and make it more intense in a way that sometimes images simply never will live up to. This depiction of the wacky, whimsical, lopsided world of penguins, it's gawky. It's a charming depiction of gawkiness and it sort of tumbles over itself in a musically clever way. But I don't think there is any footage of penguins that wouldn't diminish the music. In one of the letters, Irving says to him, he says, uh, as Doc remarks, Doc is a colleague in the music department, as Doc remarks, 
they seem pretty big penguins. <laughs> and I agree. It has a fairly heavy tread. It's a scherzo, but it doesn't seem to match the scale of the silliness of the actual penguins. And that's that nature documentary feel that someone's sense of invention kind of ran free and now has been just plugged into this movie out of convenience. But that very same sense of invention in the concert hall, in a symphony, now it doesn't need to meet actual imagery. It can just be giant penguins of the mind. And yeah, it's great. And I think Von Williams, while he was writing it, already felt that his level of inspiration and excitement about this material, it seems to have just poured out of him, merited doing something with it other than letting it be chopped to bits and used for this movie. Mm -hmm. And he already started making plans to do something like a Scott symphony with it. But he didn't finish it for four years, and it wasn't premiered until 1953, his Sinfonia Antarctica. So we should talk about that, because it has sort of had a longer life than the movie score. And in fact, I think when people say this is one of the great film scores, they're really saying that they listened to Sinfonia Antarctica and felt that they were listening to what surely must be one of the great film scores. That has to be true. Yes, you mentioned earlier there's all kinds of ink has been spilled about whether it's truly a symphony or is it really a tone poem disguised as a symphony. I think that there's something to that because, you know, what you expect from a symphony is some kind of unified statement. And he worked it toward that. But let me quote one more of these letters. This one seemed to me like kind of the smoking gun letter. A publicist or someone wrote to him asking in describing this work that he's written, uh, what should they say about its relationship to the film Scott of the Antarctic? And he writes back, As regards the connection with the Scott film, would it be honest not to refer to this at all? If it is absolutely necessary, then I suggest that we should merely say that some of the themes are taken from the music which I wrote for Scott of the Antarctic. Otherwise, people will think that it is a mere bit of carpentry, which as a matter of fact, it largely is, but don't tell anybody this. <laughs> In another letter, he says this. I think this is very telling. He says, there's another work of mine which I do not think has had proper recognition. That is my sweet Flemish farm, which is a suite he made of music to one of his earlier film scores to a much forgotten film called The Flemish Farm. He says, to my mind, it contains some of my best music, and I feel sure that if, instead of calling it a film suite, I had called it a symphony, it would have been treated with more respect. As it is, I think it has had only one performance. So that seems to be what's going on with the Sinfonia Antarctica. He wanted to have this music heard, heard in concert, taken seriously, and he knew that a film suite is not an entirely satisfactory thing to audiences or orchestras who program music, but symphonies are taken seriously. And then he did, as he said, a bit of carpentry, but don't tell anyone, to hammer the suite into five movements, which, if you go through it, he has actually done a fair bit of recomposing, but you can tell where each thing originated. And he's tried to kind of find a musical flow for these things, but he hasn't transformed them so much that there's any other real impetus to it than the original impetus of the movie narrative. I think he was aware that there was some kind of impetus missing by not having it against a film anymore that he attempted to make up for by specifying lines of poetry that were to precede each of the movements. Mm -hmm. Like he's got some piece from Shelley, I forget what else, but each movement has some lines of poetry that set it off. To suffer woes which hope 
things infinite. Yeah, and a couple of the recordings, they have an actor read those before the right. movement starts. I'm not sure that that's necessarily the correct thing, but, but it's something. that, again, represents a feeling that something is needed yeah. to find form, because form is a problem for this work. And the last movement is preceded by, you know, the last lines of Scott's journal that I read earlier. I do not regret this journey. We took risks. We knew we took them. Things have come out against us. Therefore, we have no cause for complaint. And the last movement has the most new composition in it. He takes the blizzard fanfare. And then the heroic struggle theme, the opening theme. And writes a whole new passage that weaves them together and there's some contrapuntal fighting between them. the struggle against the elements. Then he goes back to the movie music. He plays some of the death music. And then the heroism theme comes back to try to have the last word. But then it ends with the eerie sounds of the wind machine and the voice from beyond. We should talk about the wind machine. Yeah, this is interesting. This is not really a musical instrument. It's a sound effect device. I mean, I think it comes from the world of theater, right? Yeah, I think it comes from that era of the, you know, deus ex machina, like grand contraptions in the opera where there'd be a storm on stage and you'd see the lightning crash and everything and they'd have a wind machine back there making the wind sound. So it's a cylindrical drum made of open slats of wood that's mounted on an axle, and it has a sheet of canvas stretched over it. And then you spin the wooden drum with a hand crank. It whooshes underneath this sheet, and it, you know, sounds like wind, I guess. He has, yeah, written it into a symphony here. I think it works pretty well as a backdrop for this word, the soprano. Mm-hmm. I don't have a problem with it. No, I don't have a, certainly not in the symphony, I think. It has its intended effect. What's curious, and I really think kind of gets at the existential problem we're having with this score here, is that it seems like he notated that he wanted to have a wind machine playing in the score. You can hear it playing in the modern re-recording of the score that we've been you know, listening to, like here in this cue called Blizzard. That's not wind, that's a wind machine that's been notated you know, in the musical score, there's a whole note tied over several bars in a row with tremolo marks above it and instructions for the percussionist whose job it is to wind this crank and to speed it up and slow it down. And that's written into the score. I don't think it ever actually wound up getting used in the score that you hear in the 1948 movie. If it is, you can't hear it just because of the fidelity of the recording and the fact that there's plenty of actual wind sound effects in the movie because you're looking at wind on the screen. Maybe I'm making too much of this, but I kind of felt like there was some echo of the tragic futility of this expedition in writing a musical instrument form of a wind machine into a score for a movie while there were scenes with wind in them on the screen. 
because of course they're just going to use real wind sound effects. Yes, but then indeed the actual destination of this music yeah. was his Symphony Antarctica, yeah. which is well, famous for the wind machine. If you want to say, well, he was imagining it being a symphony all along, perhaps, but I think that he was at some level. I, at some level, undoubtedly, he was. You know, what was he? Seventy-three or something? That's right. He was like the most celebrated composer of his nation and his time. I think he felt like I'm going to do some more composing, and oh, I want to compose about Scott. It's for a film, but I might make a symphony later. I think to him it was all. You know, yeah. Well, I. Pre- I appreciate that. I respect that. I certainly respect its use in the symphony, but there's something to me tragically wrongheaded about (laughs) writing it into a film score. I just wanted to say real quick, you know where else in the Hall of Fame of great 20th century British musical output you can hear a wind machine? Uh, According to Wikipedia in The Starlight Express by Edward Elgar? (laughs) Maybe, but I was thinking of the end of side one of Abbey Road by The Beatles. Uh. At the end of the song, I want you, in parentheses, she's so heavy, when it kind of devolves into this repetitive mush where there is some synthesizer electronic mush in there, but there's also Ringo cranking a wind machine. Very good. So anyway, what I'm saying is the form that he gave to the symphony ends in desolation and defeat, as the story does. The movie, on the other hand, ends with fairly unconvincing, obligatory, triumphant music. I read in some source that Vaughn Williams wasn't particularly thrilled about that. Can we talk about the end of the movie? Yeah, we're talking about it. Talk away. Like you said, there's not nothing to be gotten from this movie. It has its affecting moments. You know, I felt unavoidably drawn up into this tragedy by the end. Yeah, the last half hour is the strongest part of the movie overall. Oh yeah, definitely. And that's why that's why I came away from it bummed out. Because it achieves that. It really conveys the process by which these people froze to death. They're only 11 miles away from the storage depot that they're trying to get to where they could have gotten the supplies that they needed to make it, but they just cannot go any further because they're all frostbitten and exhausted and suffering from hypothermia, and they expire in this tent 11 miles from salvation. My own dearest mother, I should so like to have come through for your dear sake. There's a scene where the three guys left, two of them have died already in the snow, and three guys left are all writing these heartbreakingly poignant letters to their wives and families and to the nation, really gallant British stuff about, don't feel sorry for me, we fought to the very end, this is a noble fate, and all of them have their different valences that they're putting on it. ever-loving son, to the end of this life and the next when God shall wipe away all tears from our eyes. It's heartrending. Oh, and then also, meanwhile, Scott has flashbacks of his wife. You see the lush, verdant greens of England again, all of a sudden, after an hour and a half of snow. Mm-hmm. In his mind's eye, as he's imagining his wife again, and then, you know, hearing them talk about making footsteps together. Think of me when you make those footmarks. Every step of the way. And this whole sequence, very touching, and there's no music playing. And I pulled my hair out, Andy, let alone 
if you're going to hire Ray Vaughn Williams, great composer, to score your movie, let alone the Vaughn Williams aspect, if you're going to make a movie about this happening, how could you do it and not play music during this scene? It's daylight lunacy. But this is what I'm saying is the difference in temperament here. I think that the attitude of Charles Friend and company was that the serious depiction of the real tragedy was to be done with as much documentary fidelity as possible and that as it got closer and closer to the essential dramatic nub of this thing, they start peeling away the music. See you sometime in March, eh? The scene that's the last time they were seen alive, sort of the turning point scene. He gave the music for that that's not in the movie. Let's give him a chill, Basically, the scene is the five men who are going to die trudge away from the camera as the men who aren't going the last leg of the journey watch them. All the way to the horizon and down over the horizon. And this happens in silence in the movie. In silence. He wrote music for that. If they had played the music that he wrote for that scene, over that scene, it would have been one of my favorite cues in the movie. I think it's a terrific cue. Well, so there is an artistic choice made in taking it out, right? It's not just a matter of it doesn't match up. It matches up perfectly. It matches up so well. You get this sense of the doomed marching where, you know, they're marching through elastic, like I was saying before, and it's all about the fatefulness of both succeeding and failing at the same time, and you hear it go into the distance. And there's two perspectives. The camera is cutting back and forth between the guy's backs trudging away from the camera and the people that they're leaving behind who are going to go back to camp. This music contains both perspectives. You can hear that they're getting farther apart from each other. And then there's this, I think, breathtakingly underplayed tragic moment when their heads dip under the horizon. And they're gone. And the music has faded down This march about forces going back and forth with each other has petered itself out in a way that tells you, you know, exactly what to think about the people who are left behind looking at them go. Mm -hmm. The witnesses. Yeah. This piece conveys witness to the tragedy. And they took it out, yes, because it was improper, I don't know, in poor taste. I don't think that it's improper, but I think that they imagined an experience, which I had, you know, the first time I watched it, when I didn't know there was music for it, I felt something of it. I did too. I did feel something in the silence. In my quiet, inner British heart, feeling such sorrow, weeping without showing it, listening to nothing, knowing all of the heavy meaning that this silence conveys. There was an effect to that, and they were so committed to that effect that, yes, the movie gets very unromantic as it moves toward its end. He also wrote, he has a cue called Only 11 Miles, Mm -hmm. which seems to have been intended for some point along this tragic ending, you know, where the audience is gnashing our teeth about the horrible irony of them being so close and yet so far. Again, I can imagine the editor thinking... Yeah, you can't put this here. This is too strong. This is too bombastic. This is too big and operatic. You know, that's not the kind of production we're doing. That's not the kind of thing we're doing that's here. Right. That's right. That, that's for the opera stage. That's not for... We dursn't put this music here. And okay, yeah, maybe you're right. Don't put that music there. But this is where I come back to, if you want a collaboration, then collaborate. 
this is a failure of filmmaking because there wasn't communication, there wasn't actual talking about what was going to be there and why that everybody could be party to and do something about. Just insufficient imagination. They had, you know, been in Norway, whatever, shooting their scenes, and they had started to have some image of the movie. When they heard this music, they should have stood back and said, we have the opportunity to make something with symphonic force here. If there had been a collaboration like Vaughn Williams described and wanted, it would have wound up being a quite arty movie indeed. Like, you could imagine the movie he had in his mind being made by, like, an Aronofsky or somebody <laughs> like that. Yeah, I'm serious. Like, the movie in which you hear the doomed siren call intruding on these very prosaic domestic scenes, I, I agree I wanted to see that movie. I, I want to see that movie. Yeah, but they didn't have it in them to make that movie. That's right. You know, Ealing Studios is not known for <laughs> intense, arty dramas of doom. They're known for the comedies with Alec Guinness, for the lady killers. and Kind hearts and coronet. Yeah. yeah, and the lady killers. Yeah. Okay, before we're done here, I just want to talk about what I was really thinking about while I listened to this music <laughs> was, okay, well, maybe it didn't find a perfect home in its own movie, but it has had a life as an influential sound world. I could not stop thinking about Bernard Herrmann while I watched this. Did you make that connection at all? In places, yes. I was sort of taken aback by how many of the sounds that I, as a Herrmann fan, have thought of as, Bernard Herrmann made this up. Oh, Vaughn Williams made that stuff up. And I know that Bernard Herrmann was a devout Anglophile. Bernard Herrmann loved Vaughn Williams, and I saw one of the reviews of the recent Live to Projection concerts said, just casually, that Bernard Herrmann cited Scott of the Antarctic as one of his great influences, and I thought, oh, I gotta find that, source that, and I could not source it, so I don't know if that was uh, just someone made it up, but it sounds like it could have been. That skill of selecting pungent harmonic moves, but always with an eye to that they have to mean something, they have to be solid and strong and as full as possible of emotional significance. Bernard Herrmann is the only other composer I know who comes close to this style, and I heard, in places, I heard Journey to the Center of the Earth and Mysterious Island, his fantasy scores. I also heard his uh, main title to Fahrenheit 451. With the tinkling glockenspiel, the ice flow music sounds kind of like that. So that influence was fairly overwhelming, but the Symphonia Antarctica, I think, was on the shelves of a lot of movie people as a go-to track for awe-inspiring, unearthly, frightening, desolate sounds. And it is known that in making 2001, Stanley Kubrick played this on set to give Cure Delay the impression of what Dave was seeing in all the special effects in the Stargate at the end that hadn't been put together oh, yet. Oh, wow. And was apparently thinking he was going to use it in the movie. He didn't, ultimately. But in an interview, Cure Delay said, If you're interested, look it up and wait for a very mysterioso section of the piece. That's what helped me react to something I wasn't seeing. I imagine that it was the third movement of the symphony, which is substantially based on the cue climbing the glacier, which has this marvelous orchestral effect where he has an organ and the orchestra kind of constructing an organ-like sound mm -hmm. at the same time. So there's an organ and sort of a pseudo-organ 
and they create this truly unearthly timbre. And it's playing huge octaves, you know, unisons, a single pitch in different octaves. Moving around in this stony, vast way. It sounds like the size of a glacier, unthinkably broad Mm -hmm. sounds. Do you know where in the Settling the Score catalog we've heard a piece of music that I feel certain was tempted with this? You're not going to say Interstellar, are you? Because that's got an organ in it. I'm going to say Interstellar in a minute, but not for this. Okay. (laughs) All right, then tell me. I believe that this is the precursor to the music for the spaceship at the beginning of E.T. Huh. It's got the organ. It's got that two-voice counterpoint spread very wide. Huh. It has calm, but it also has the imposing forces, the immovable objects. Humans are no match for these lines moving through space. I think that's where it came from. But yes, funny you should bring up Interstellar. Another thing about the influence of this score that I wanted to talk about is this chord. The chord that the winds and the piano are playing in that passage I said I looked at in high school at the very beginning. The chord, I don't know what the official name of it is. Major plus flat six, like a C chord with an A flat on the top. The feeling of the chord to me is that it's a major chord that has some lens flare on it. It has a little extra light. Yeah, that's right. It has a shimmer. The top of the chord is like, it's not in focus. It's coming into focus. Yeah, I feel like that note on the top of the chord is like, you know, the sun is right behind the chord and it's uh-huh, peeking uh-huh. around the edge and kind of glaring in your eye. There's a little glare, bit yeah. of glare in the chord. My sense of that chord is that it is a sort of modern fantasy kind of chord. I certainly, in Interstellar, that's the wormhole chord. I think Scott of the Antarctic, or the Symphonia Antarctica, which is the form in which it's most often been heard, I think this is the earliest source I am aware of for using that chord to convey forbidding vastness and some of that sense of the glare in your eyes. And as I was hearing this, I was like, oh, I think Symphonia Antarctica was probably tempted into Star Wars for the Starfield right after the main titles, where it lands on this chord for the vastness of space. As we said, Star Wars is a recomposing the temp score score. Someone pulled something from a record. I bet it was Symphonia Antarctica because, you know, it has special status in that way. There isn't too much in the classical repertoire that really is dedicated to conveying vast, frightening, alien, fascinating landscapes, those kind of sci-fi emotions. And there's this one piece that does it. Talk about from the sublime to the ridiculous. You want to know another place where I believe that same organ moment in the symphony shows up in pop culture? Where? Well, I went and looked this up because I felt like it might be useful for recording this episode. Turned out to be a bit of a disappointment. um, There is an episode of Monty Python's Flying Circus. Oh, I watched it, John. Which is titled (laughs) Scott of the Antarctic. Yeah, there's like a 10-minute skit about it. Yeah, right. And it should have been a red flag for me that this was something that I had only been (laughs) dimly aware of before as opposed to, oh, I don't know, say knowing it by heart. Are you going to complain about the Scott of the Antarctic skit now? Oh, well, fine. Go ahead. Knock it down. I think it pretty clearly is lesser Monty Python. (laughs) (laughs) Anyway, yeah, they imagine a scenario in which there's a crass American producer, you know, Eric Idle's doing a bad American accent, 
and he sees the lion and he finds and he it and he winds up making it Scott of the Sahara because he wants to have him fight a lion okay, and an electric penguin. Scott of the Sahara. They play some of the actual music, and I suspect it's from the symphony and not from the score. It absolutely is. You can confirm that it is from the symphony because it has the thing that's in the symphony but not in the score where the organ really blasts out loud. Yeah, that's true. That's what made me think it was the symphony. And you hear the organ music over the shot of Terry Jones, you know, taking off his clothes and using his underwear as a slingshot to fight a giant penguin. And then, and then from there he goes on. You can hear the doom-ridden, trudging music as Carol Cleveland is, uh, you know, in a bikini running down the beach, and then her top falls off. Yes, a uh, a cactus pulls her top off. <laughs> I did have in my notes here that if we got to the end and John had not brought up this god of the Sahara, I got to say something about it. But you did. <laughs> uh, I'm both flattered and appalled. Um, for something completely different. Yeah, John, I've got a riddle for you. Oh, yes. Okay. Person walks a mile north, a mile east, and then a mile south, <laughs> which puts them back where they started, and then they hear music. <laughs> Who is the music by? <laughs> yeah. I, oh, I have to say the answer? The answer is Ray Fun Williams. Because you're at the South Pole. The only way you can go. <laughs> you don't need to explain it. Pole. Everyone knows. It's a, it's a little South Pole humor. Was that it? Was that your joke that you I was going to start with that, <laughs> yes. <laughs> I think it would have been better at the beginning. I don't. <laughs> And he told me that he had a joke queued up in his barrel, and that was it. At the beginning, John said, do you have anything you want to start with? I said, well, I have something silly to start with. And then he said, no, I'm going to start with this instead. And then he was like, have you said your silly thing yet? And I said, no, you'll know when I say it. Because it was that. Well, I hope everybody enjoyed it. All right. So to put Antarctica behind us, my closing statement, as you've sort of heard coming for a while, this is the ultimate case in point for the issue that seems to keep coming up on this show, which is what do we make of film scores that aren't satisfying as film scores, but are wonderfully satisfying as scores to imaginary films in your mind as you listen to the soundtracks. It's just this quizzical kind of imagination-based musical form. This was on lists of the greatest film scores of all time because the music lives on and absolutely relates to a film about Scott of the Antarctic, some of which can be seen in the film Scott of the Antarctic, (laughs) 1948. About 10 minutes of that film, if you edit it together, would seem like a marvelously scored film. Yeah. And then the rest of it lives on either in the symphony that tries to kind of make a form for you, or you make the form in your own head. It kind of is left as a problem for the listener, but it deserves to go somewhere. It is stirring. When I listen to it, I feel moved in a way that's a little unsettled, unfamiliar. I do hear the artistic greatness of the composer behind this in the expansiveness of the musical vision. The problem of form is just an open-ended problem that the film doesn't solve. I don't think the symphony solves. I don't think that the soundtrack of the complete score solves, although it is very well done. It remains unsolved, but have at it. I sometimes think that this question of form is overblown, that music is what it is, and it doesn't have to answer for itself by fitting into a pigeonhole. I certainly, as you've heard me say, feel like the academic hand-wringing about whether his symphony is properly deserving of being considered a symphonic form is misguided. And I say 
piffle to it. So I am sort of less concerned, I think, than you are with whether the film score is the proper form or the soundtrack or the symphony that is inspired by it. I just want to stick up for and say that the form of scoring a film is worthwhile, is a good enough thing to do artistically. It is a valid artistic problem to have to create this ephemeral liquid gossamer in the air and make it be about the story that the, you know, various other kinds of gossamer of filmmaking are also bending towards. That's a great, it's a great thing to do. That's it's not something to which somebody would stoop to do. And I don't think he thought he was stooping to do it, but it has demands to do that. You must be thinking both artistically and practically. I think the marriage of the artistic and the practical is a wonderful achievement that is a form in and of itself that is worthy. It just sounds like you must, when I was saying form, it must have left the impression of some kind of aspirational high standard. And uh, if that sounded that way to other people, I want to just clarify, because I didn't mean that form is the sign of greatness. I meant that form, you know, some amount of organization of your experience is necessary for your experience to be meaningful. If you string a bunch of things in a row, eventually you get fed up with the string of things. But if you have an arc to your story or to your music or to your symphony, then uh, that arc carries the listener along. Whether or not they're tracking it, it just gives them meaning. And I feel like this movie, not for being a movie, but for being a movie with no form, and as we said, it's probably because they thought the audience already had a dramatic form in their mind, but there's no arc. It seems triumphant yeah. in the middle. After it already seemed doomed, and it cuts back and forth between whether we think that this is all just a day's work or it's all weighted with tragedy, it doesn't give us an arc. So I'm not talking about the form of a symphony as the sign of a masterpiece. I'm just saying, how do I get from the beginning to the end and at the end feel that all had to happen? It all made sense. And I think that the hand-wringing, which I understand your annoyance that people worry about whether something's a symphony, who cares as long as it's good, but symphonic form is a form of experience. Like you go into the first movement with a kind of a map in your head about why there's a second movement and what you're going to get out of the third movement and where you are at the fourth movement. And as you listen to the Symphonia Antarctica, I feel like you're hearing an evocative series of things, but the symphony is not a model for why we got from the beginning to the end. I think that's what they're talking about. I think that's all I meant. I'm not poo-pooing movies as a legitimate artistic endpoint at all. I think that the how, like, how could I think that you were? Okay, but I'm saying that the form of watching a movie and listening to music that is part of that movie—that's a form too. That's a way of structuring the sequence of things in a row that is meaningful and valid. And because it is a form, you know, it has demands and it requires attention to certain mechanisms and rules. Absolutely. Absolutely. And it's in some ways the strongest experience of form because a good movie, you couldn't even consider experiencing right. it any other way because it just has you in its grip. And that form is worth doing and therefore it's worth doing well. Despite how distinguished this music is, it wasn't done well here. You know, what it made me think of is, you know, there's so much content produced these days, and not all of it should be expected to have a carefully composed score that has to be, you know, artistically valid in whatever highfalutin ways. So much stuff out there 
gets done by quick and dirty shortcuts like using a music library, where instead of music that is written originally to a film or to a TV show or a cartoon or a video game or whatever, you have access to some library of music from amongst which you can pick and choose things that you can edit together to make a simulacrum of what a score would be because you don't have the time or the uh, resources to actually do one, of course. And I understand that. I have written library music. I've also had the job of editing library music that I didn't write into a cartoon and picking and choosing and, you know, painting by number with stuff that wasn't my composition. That's all well and good, and that kind of editing can be done better or worse but you sense that it's not as satisfying as something that is really composed to picture and where this form of how can the music guide and structure the audience's experience, you sense that it hasn't been given its proper statement. Well, unfortunately, I think that what Ray Fawn Williams has done here is essentially write a music library mm-hmm. that was used as such by the editors of this movie. Mm-hmm. I think what this demonstrates is that that's not as good. That's not as good a way to put music against something, even when that music is by the great Vaughn Williams. Even when the library is comprised of music of very high caliber, making the movie without thought for music making the music without thought for the picture, and then throwing them together higgledy-piggledy, catch-as-catch-can in editing is not the right way to do it. You know, hearing you say that made me think, oh, yeah, I don't think they did a good job working from the library. No, they didn't. They did a bad job of it. There's an art to doing that. Yes, it could have been done better. Because I think they didn't approach it as working from a library. They approached it as, well, let's try our best to do what Mr. Vaughn Williams wants, and we'll do our best to achieve that, rather than looking at the body of music he'd given them and trying to score it as best they could. And hearing you say that made me kind of want to try. Like, ooh, could I rescore this movie with its score better? Yes. kind of think I could. You definitely could. That would be an interesting project. And now I wonder if that live-to-projection score, if they've granted themselves any liberties, I hope they have. I hope they did. I hope they did. I bet you could drastically improve this movie by tracking music from, not even from the symphony, from... From its score. From its score that he wrote intending it to be for this movie. If you tracked in cues only constrained to the spots in the movie where there currently is no music, you could drastically improve the movie. I agree. I saw that I think the rental company is calling it the composer's cut. I thought, ooh, what does that entail? But it seems like it just entails that they reconstructed what's actually in the movie and are saying, well, he got to approve of these things. But I wish they had said, look, we'll play the movie and we'll play music from the score the whole time, but we'll really play it the whole time. I bet you could make a really affecting piece out of that. I do too. I still think it wouldn't have been as good as if Vaughn Williams had... (laughs) Scored a movie normal way. Had scored a movie. Well, if you want to see Vaughn Williams scoring a movie a normal way, you should go watch 49th Parallel or Flemish Farm or Coastal Command or The Loves of Joanna Gotten or any of the other movies that he scored. In his own words, he thought that the suite from Flemish Farm had some of his best music. Go investigate. <laughs> but we are going to go on to something completely unrelated. Yes, indeed. <laughs> to have this phrase uttered for the second time on the show and now for something completely different. Okay, Andy, I think it's your turn with the lottery ball machine. All right. Give her a spin. Oh, it's been spinning. It can't be stopped. Listen to it spinning. I'm reaching in. Yeah. Is it cold? Is it cold in there? I am now pulling out. Yeah, yeah, yeah. A remembered ball. Yeah. 
the machine has spoken. Our next selection is mm. the 1967 score to In the Heat of the Night by Quincy Jones. Ooh, wow. That's pretty cool. This is something completely different. Yeah, 1967. We haven't been anywhere near there in a while. Yeah, that's true. This is a whole other era. It's got a whole other vibe. And I kind of love going from Rafe Vaughn Williams to Quincy Jones. You know, somebody who has a real command and, you know, all-time mastery of music from a totally different point of view. But look, they had the same job to do. So Yeah, that's what's so cool about movie music. It unifies pretty much any possible style of music yeah. under the same intent and sort of the same attitude of listening like can apply to all of them. That's a very gratifying aspect of this to me. And as listeners to this show might remember, I really feel like this jazz, pop, funk-inflected, different take on film score kind of sound I really feel like it speaks to me a lot of the time. I don't know this movie, even though it's an Oscar-winning, you know, best picture. Yeah, I'll admit I haven't seen it either, and it's always good when this show leads me somewhere that I wanted to be led anyway. Exactly. It's about time to see this. It's about time to see this. It's about time to really pay attention to this music. It's about time to get somebody like Quincy Jones on the show. I'm excited. So yeah, hope everybody joins us next time for that one. And listen, thank you so much for listening along this far about this movie that I bet you hadn't even heard of, let alone seen. Yeah, when we do these, I always take a reading of how popular the movie is, just out of curiosity by going to IMDb and seeing how many reviews it has. <laughs> and uh, this one is by far the least seen of the movies we've ever done a show about. There had to be some episode that was the least seen movie of the ones we've done. Yeah, so far. There's plenty of room below this one, so stay tuned. <laughs> And if you like the show, which I dare say you probably like the show if you are still listening now, (laughs) (laughs) thank you so much. And why don't you register that by writing us a review where you can write reviews. It helps other people hear the show, too. Or just tell people. Just actually tell them in person is even better. If you want to tell them not in person, which I agree is not as good, uh, you can do that also on Twitter at Scoresettlers. And of course, you can support the show on Patreon at patreon.com slash settling the score, where there's bonus content. We've got bonus content. We've got voting on the... We've got voting. (laughs) It's pretty much, we've got it all. Yep. People out there voted for this movie, and you can vote for the next one. Thanks a lot, everyone. Thank you very, very much for listening. Stay warm out there. Or cool in the night. Yeah, we're switching. We're switching from cold to heat. Can we make something out of that? (laughs) Too late. Goodbye, everybody. (laughs) 